for all the landlords and brokers on this podcast, how much does it cost to retenant a space? You know, you're closed, you don't get rent or, or uh, triple nets. Then you got to find a tenant, then you got to pay the broker, then you got to hire architects, then you got to do the construction, and then you got to open it. And that takes, you know, could take a year, $700,000 worth of investment. I'm talking about a decent restaurant, not like a, a small inline QSR or something. And then you get reopened, and guess where you are when you reopen after spending $700,000 and not collecting rent for 10 months? Another restaurateur that needs to make 10% or they fail. So if you just wrote it out in that rough patch by design, not because you're a benevolent landlord and gave the guy a break, but because in the lease it contemplated a partnership and you split more of the upside and you rode the downside together, that restaurant wouldn't have failed and you wouldn't have to retenant it and you can fix the problem. And that's what I believe to be a much better formula for success. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort I've got my good buddy, Brady Wood, who is the founder of a company in Dallas called Woodhouse. Brady is an influencer and innovator in the entertainment concept and real estate development space. He has the proven ability to see the unseen, which allows him to navigate complex and nuanced art of concept creation. This episode is awesome. Brady is a legend in the hospitality space. He has owned bars and restaurants. He's built private clubs. He owns music festivals. He's been in the real estate business and understands in depth what a mixed-use real estate developer needs to do to be better. We talk a lot about kind of the restaurant world and why he thinks the model is totally broken, which was fascinating. And we talk a little bit about what we should expect going forward. Uh, But again, Brady is just an innovator and a visionary and has created some of the best concepts, especially in Texas, that Texans know. So enjoy this episode and thank you again for continuing to join me on this journey. Brady, I'm excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining me. Glad to be here, Chris. Let's just start with a little bit about kind of your story growing up and the different things that you've experienced that kind of led you to where you are today at Woodhouse? Well, uh, let's see. I am from New Orleans, Louisiana. Very proud of that. Always thought I would probably head back there. But uh, ended up at SMU and started a company when I was in my junior year, opened a bar. So by the time I got out of SMU, I was already in business and planted here and have been here ever since. You know, I've been an entrepreneur forever. So, I, I, you know, it's, it's a great city to live in if you're an entrepreneur. So that's what, that's what got me here. And you started the bar in college. And is there something kind of growing up or along the way that kind of made you kind of a creative and visionary, someone that was going to be in the hospitality and entertainment space? I think that's like a a unique skill, or did you just want to make money and started a bar? No, uh, it didn't happen like that at all. In fact, my family 
was not in the hospitality or food and beverage business. They were in the marine, like industrial marine business. And I think I've always been a solver uh, in my fraternity for whatever reason they called me the arranger. They said it in like a long, they made fun of the way they said it. I think I was getting hazed. <laughs> but uh, it's because I was always trying to figure things out, maybe doing it a little different. And I did, I was hosting events at this hole in the wall bar called the Rhythm Room. And they didn't have a bar outside and we were always outside in the beer garden. And I was like, it's a beer garden. There's no beer for sale. We should put a bar out there. We sh- you know, you should, there's a bottleneck over here. We should, you know, put a double door instead of a single door. I was basically bitching at the owner and the owner's like, we lose money. We hate this business. If you buy, it was actually one of the two owners. And when he goes, if you buy me out, um, you can do whatever the hell you want. And uh, I was like, really? I can buy half of a bar? And I said, how much? And he goes, 20 grand, 18 if you pay cash. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? I can buy half this place? Well, I didn't have 18 grand, but I called my brother and between our two cars that we sold and uh, maxing on our credit cards and borrowing money from our friends, we 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 pieced together nine grand a piece, and uh, and and bought half of the rhythm room. And what they don't tell you is that if you buy a bar in college and you're in the in the fraternity system, the entire Greek system will go to your bar starting the next day and keep going every day. <laughs> and because they quote unquote know the owner, and so we we uh, it was crazy. It was crazy crazy times. And so we ended up doing that. And then we went across the street, well, one block over and opened up the green elephant and then trees and then green. I mean, we just kept going and going and had so much fun. So when you bought half the bar, you were buying like the outdoor area and did you have to build something or did you just have to move? uh, No, half of the ownership. So I became partners with the other, there was two guys that owned it from SMU and one guy wanted out. The other guy was in a band that played there all the time. And he was a great guy. And he's like, man, I don't want to sell my part. I like playing, playing here. So he, I became his partner and, uh, and we, we added bars and did all this work. You know, I did, we went to home Depot and did it ourselves. I can replumb a toilet on a Friday night with a line out the door. Um, you know, I learned all that stuff. Did you have to work? Is it one of the, were, were you kind of the owner operator? You're always there at night kind of overseeing things or do you have a manager in place? No, I mean, at first we were, you know, I was the manager, I guess. I'm trying to think it was a long time ago, um, but I did do checkout and we would be there almost nightly till about four, four thirty in the morning. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of hours, but it was so incredibly fun. And I couldn't believe that, you know, that was, and by the way, I was, we actually made money and my family didn't have a lot of money. And so it was, it was, I ended up paying for the last part of SMU. And I don't know that we would have continued at SMU had we not done that. So it inadvertently kept me in Dallas and we, we uh, were able to piece together some more restaurants and bars and opened, that's how we got um, Green Elephant and then Trees were, were literally shoestring deals. Did you end up selling all those businesses or do you still have them or what was, had those kind of end for you? 
uh, sold Rhythm Room twice. I, I held onto a note the first time and got it back and then sold it again. It was a lot. I love those. I love those kind of deals. Yep. Um, and then at Green Elephant, I sold it. Uh, and they actually paid for all of it. And it was, uh, it was uh, at the time, it just seemed like a lot of money. I probably shouldn't have ever sold any of them. But some of the other ones, like Trees and Green Room, which were hot, hot, hot for, you know, 10 plus years. The na- you know, you guys know, Deep Ellum ebbs and flows. And it it went downhill. And of all times, like in 2005, 2006, when the world was booming, Deep Ellum actually went into a real bad slide. Oh, wow. So so our customers pretty much stopped coming to Deep Ellum for a few years and it, and it killed us. I, later in this show, I think we should touch on my thoughts about why restaurants fail. But, um, but yeah, they, they, they legitimately failed after 10 years of a great run. We will, we will definitely be hitting on that. All right. When we had talked, uh, kind of leading up to the show, we, we had, you know, obviously Woodhouse has a lot they cover and I want to get your take on, on Woodhouse does, but before Woodhouse, you had experiences in real estate, obviously the music and F and B and entertainment business, and then experiential. What was kind of the next step after kind of owning bars and restaurants around Dallas? Uh, when did you get into real estate? Well, in early on, I mean, almost from the beginning, we were actually doing pretty well and had had some extra cash. You know, not a lot, but I mean, a little bit. And I remember. I think it was 90, try not to date myself, but uh, across the street from Green Elephant was, a, I think, one of the last RTC for you guys that have a few years on you. You remember the Resolution Trust, Trust Corporation? And, and they were disposing of all the SNL assets that the government took back. And there was a bar, a place, it was Tony Roma's rib something or other. And it had been, I think it was the last building on their list that nobody wanted. It was on SMU Boulevard. And we we did like kind of the traditional thing. We got uh, a loan from, from a bank that believed in us. You know, we're only 20 years old, 21 years old at the time, 22, something like that. And, and this guy, John Douglas at Southwest Bank, listened to us and he's like, I believe, you know, I believe in you guys. And, and we bought that building. And that led to another building in Deep Ellum and another building and another building. And we bought dozens and dozens of buildings over the next 10 years. And uh, almost all of them were these mom and pop strap a tool belt on and go to Home Depot. And I hope none of them have burned down because I did the electrical in a bunch of them. (laughs) (laughs) I've got shocked a few times. But um, anyway, we just kind of, what we would do is we might buy four or five buildings on a block and we would put a restaurant. Actually, Green Room was an example of this. We would buy the buildings and then put a restaurant in the middle of the block. And then all the rest of the block, you know, block would increase in value that we were the landlord on. And so we would use our own concepts to, to uh, enhance the value of our own real estate holdings. And we did that a lot. I don't want to ask you what those buildings are worth today. I don't know if you still own them, but if you bought anything in Dallas when you were buying, 
what it's worth today would probably blow your mind and what you paid for it back then would probably blow your mind. We, you know, over time we sold most of our real estate, but yeah, it was great. It was a great run. <laughs> but, but I got to tell you, Deep Ellum was scary for a while. You know, if it, it wasn't Maine and Maine. It was, it was, uh, it was like a real problem area for a while, but it eventually, once there was enough institutional investment, which if you drive down there now, you see high rises, you, you can't let things go to pot if you have $100 million worth of investment or more. Back then, you know, you got a $200,000 building, a $400,000 building, and, and there's panhandlers or potholes or no parking or whatever the problems are, no lighting. You kind of, like, well, that's just part of the charm. Now they got to fix it because they have these massive investments. And that's really what happened. That's what turned the corner for Deep Ellum. Yep. And for those listening, not in Dallas, Deep Ellum is the is going to be the home of Uber's second headquarters to put some perspective. So it has come a, a long, long way and has high rises going up everywhere. Well, I want to dive into these different buckets. And I think the best way to probably do it is maybe describing what you do today at Woodhouse and kind of how you... Uh, how do you describe what Woodhouse does? And then we can start touching on these different parts of hospitality and where you kind of do your magic. So how do you describe Woodhouse and kind of what you do today? You have to take, kind of break apart the way we think in, in, uh, in two ways. One, we're, we're restaurateurs, we're entertainment guys. So we also, because of our real estate background, the fact that we had a real estate fund, we can talk about at some point, but we, we had a real estate fund from 2005 until about 2000, I don't know. It was after 08, but not far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> talk about that part too. But um, we raised $250 million and and deployed it pretty quickly. And so we have an institutional side to our thinking as well. So when we're going into a project, we're not only thinking... You know, what are we going to serve on this plate? What is the experience? What, you know, what's the decor? We're also thinking, you know, this is an investment. We have investors to answer to. If it's a large development, the developer has, you know, maybe a REIT or bank. It has all these uh, things that they're thinking about. So when we're in a meeting and we're trying to solve problems for our clients or ourselves, we're wearing both hats. How can we create an amazing experience and how do we answer the, the needs that the, uh, the landlord has because they're interested in what we, we're doing from an experiential standpoint, but really what they're trying to do is, is make sure their investment appreciates and you know, in, a, in many cases, they want to sell it quickly. So they need you know, the, the leases and all the, and we're going to get into leases in a little bit, but there's, there's usually something that they're really thinking about mm-hmm. that, that we have to, as restaurateurs, sort of think with them. Otherwise, you know, a lot of restaurateurs, you know, not to knock my colleagues, but, you know, they don't really think about that side of it. They're just, they're just trying to provide a, a, an amazing meal with great service and, and have, you know, make ends meet, basically. So to take that, so we at Woodhouse, we consult, we also open restaurants, we also own things, uh, own, own different types of music festivals and private membership clubs and 
But we, we like to think that we provide creative solutions to a unique set of variables. We are not plug and play. We are not going to take an inline restaurant space and, uh, and just go open up a pizza joint or something. We want to find out all the different variables and then come up with some usually very unique solution that probably is, is individually concepted with its own brand. So uh, I can give you an example. I was asked, or we were asked by Jerry Jones and his family to help develop the star in Frisco. So you guys may be aware, you know, they moved their training facility. They probably have spent $2 billion by now, 91 acres, amazing location, fast-growing city. And, and they had a unique set of variables. They have the number one sports brand in the world. They have an owner who only wants the best and gives you free reign. They, they, they stay very involved and they're very creative. So I started peppering them with ideas. What if you did your, instead of having Equinox, what if you did your own gym and branded it and just cloned your player's gym and you just open it to the public? What if you have a, a club, a private membership club that appreciates the affinity of your brand and will attract people to join? What if you cut a deal with Baylor Scott & White had a, 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 a center of excellence for orthopedics and um, some of these were brewing. Some of them were my ideas, but basically, and then we did um, a co-working space called Formation. Those projects, they don't exist anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that all of them would, would work if they weren't in that set, that particular environment. So uh, except for the fitness, the fitness has expanded greatly. And now there's 11 teams, NFL teams and NBA teams that have like a 49ers fit, for example, so Cowboys fit all over the, the country. So that one grew and it, and it had legs. But, but mostly those projects were exactly what needed to happen for that set of variables. And in a traditional sense, in real estate, what we're very tempted to do is hire a broker and fill space. But there wasn't a Cowboys fit in existence. There wasn't a Cowboys club. There wasn't a Baylor Scott and White Center of Excellence. There was, or there wasn't a, a formation, which is this unique co-working solution. Those didn't exist in the world, but they're perfect for that location. So next time you guys are at the Star, go visit those spaces because you'll look around and you'll say this doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. So we pride ourselves on having come up with these very customized entertainment food and beverage, I guess in that case, medical solutions for uh, for something that doesn't exist already. So let's keep going on this because this is super interesting. So did they hire you when it was just a, a piece of land and you were part of the initial team envisioning everything or was it already kind of going on and then they brought you in? Like, what did they do that was right that most developers should think about uh, as far as when to bring a guy like you into the fold? Well, that's an interesting question because I'll circle back to that in a second, but the, what typically happens is when you do a master plan, you know, some kind of mixed use ambitious project, which seems like all of them are that all, all the, it's how many billion plus projects have been announced in the last five years, 10 years, whatever, you know, so what happens is the architects draw these beautiful watercolors or renderings, and they always have 
some sort of center plaza park something in the middle of it and they put all these people and a lot of times they'll even put an orchestra on some band shell and they'll they'll have like literally an orchestra with 50 band members playing to two or 300 people and they'll draw it in this and it looks beautiful and they you know so then they build it but at some point it dawns on the developer either before they open or after they open that it doesn't work like that to get an orchestra to play your plaza costs tens of thousands if not way more than that the sound and lights the the uh, the fact that it's sunny or raining or cold or hot all plays into whether or not your musicians can even function. And then where are all these people coming from? You know, they were free when you just draw them in, but when you, they actually have to t- change their daily decision to actually make their journey out to your project, they're not there. They don't come. So we come in and we sort of go, guys, there's no orchestra playing at your at your band shell. By the way, band shells, just to keep that thing activated, would cost millions of dollars a year. So we might say, what if we put a pave a paver brick thing with a plug next to it and buy some speaker? You know, we you could have a guy go sit on a stool and play acoustic guitar for two hundred bucks and have 50 or 100 people kind of stop by just because they can. But it, it was a total investment of 200 bucks if you think ahead and you do the infrastructure right. But it, it never happens like that. So so anyway, we come in and help figure out what's practical, what a budget would be to program, um, what that programming might look like. If you need to build a you know cover over it or whatever, over the stage, Maybe you need more restaurants over here. A lot of times we end up being the restaurant because we we come up with some, again, unique solution that doesn't exist out there in the world. And we'll just do it ourselves. So um, that's kind of what we do. That's how we enter into a project. And the Cowboys was was not much different. We were helping them with a project at the, at the uh, stadium. And we were meeting with the family every week. And they were talking about all these other agenda items and I would just sit through and listen to those other agenda items, which, by the way, was fascinating. And one of the agenda items was, you know, we just got this opportunity to move our headquarters. And so I I was just in the room when they were thinking through if they should do it. And if they did it, what would they do? And, and I would say, well, what if we did a club? Or what if we did this? Or what if we did that? And and over time, they I just became part of the team. So that was a little bit of just just being lucky, right place in the right time. But we stayed together for five years, and and have some really great projects that came out of it. So when when they they make the decision to go to the star and they're going to do this incredible development, which it has been, and then you're kind of sitting here thinking about all these different concepts, you've kind of rattled off four or five that y'all kind of, I don't want to say created out of thin air, but they didn't exist anywhere. Is Woodhouse putting together kind of the plan? This is what it would be, presenting it to the family. And then if the buy-in happens, is it Woodhouse that's actually developing these brands and getting them all started? Or how how does that work once they've, once the family said, you know, we want the co-working, we want Baylor, Scott and White, we want you know, all these different things that you had kind of curated. 
Well, all of them were different. So in general, I was making sure that the idea got open somehow. Remember, they they own a big food and beverage business themselves, Legends. So at some point, Legends stepped in and took, you know, when it got to a certain point, they took over because they do that. But the the inception of the idea up to it's done, we're doing it, we're moving forward. There's leases signed, you know, they sign leases between themselves. You know, it's it's a very organized, amazing structure that they have. And for anybody that's worked with that family knows that there's just nobody better. And so uh, that, you know, a funny thing is, you know, they don't use banks when they, when we were creating all this. So everybody out there that has to close with a bank knows that there's a stack of three ring binders and investment committees. And I mean, the amount of energy that we all put into getting something closed is, is as much as opening whatever it is we just closed. And when you're just dealing with a, a family that's a visionary group like that, and there's no banks, you just do it. So it's really efficient. <laughs> it's good to have resources. And and how do you come up with these concepts? Have you just been in it so long that they just come natural to you? It's obvious to you? Or like, do you look at data? Or, or how do you kind of imagine what all these need to be and come up with them? I do not look at data. I don't do any studies. I mean, if they're there, I'll glance at them, but it's, I don't know that studies deliver what you need for food, beverage, and entertainment. I mean, if you're doing what I do, if you're doing something formulaic and it's, it's a chain, you know, there's a lot of examples in food and beverage that, that I'm not talking about and I don't work within. And there's, by the way, they made, they've made zillions of dollars doing what they do, but that's just not what we do where we do one-offs. And everything's unique. Then how do you how do you get inspiration? Like if you're not looking at any of that, it's it's obviously that would that would team. that would sap my inspiration if I actually looked at all that. Um, it's just gut, it's instinct. I don't know. I don't know if I can answer that. I mean, I, I'll tell you this: my most successful projects, like Jose in Dallas, there's a we have a modern Mexican restaurant that's uh, that's very margarita tequila and interior mexican food driven chef driven here in dallas and i literally built that the way i would want to experience it and didn't think what customers would want so if you go there and you love the usual which is my version of a ranch water that's just the drink that i drank so i people love it we sell a ton of them so um we make a salt that I love. So we start selling it now it sells online and people buy the salt called turbo salt. So it's, it's really doing what you, you think that you would like. And then the first, every time I've ever tried to second guess what the customers would want that I don't care for, like a cigar bar, I failed because I don't smoke cigars. I mean, I'll smoke one occasionally, but I'm not a cigar smoker. So opening a cigar bar is not a good idea for a guy like me. Then what, what is like, if it's somebody that maybe is opening up their first restaurant, like where do they fail? And let's just kind of maybe go down, since we're on restaurants, let's just have that whole conversation that we wanted to have. 
why are great restaurants great and why do uh, what is perceived to be a great restaurant where people might even invest millions of dollars in high-end stuff fail? Where, where, what's right and what's wrong? So, so uh, the listeners know, must, they're, they're guessing that you and I talked about this. This is my, like after doing this for decades, I've come to the realization that restaurants are a terrible business model. <laughs> They're absolutely set up for failure. And everybody knows that restaurants fail and everybody gives all the stats at one and whatever. Or I don't even know what the stat is, but it's basically all restaurants fail. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and <clears throat> there's a reason for that stat. It's true. It's absolutely true. Restaurants fail. It doesn't matter how good of a restaurateur you are or how green you are. They will fail. And the reason is, the model is broken because the model is set up where you sign this lease that governs a very complicated, very delicate business model that at best makes, you know, if we can make 10 or 15% margins, we're above the curve. And, and by the way, that's, that's hard. You work your butt off to make, you know, 10% or whatever it is. But what a lease does is it, anticipates perfection. You will, for the next five to 10 years, make 10%, which is enough for the landlord to get the rent, the investors to get paid back, the taxes and employees and the, every expense to get paid, and the operator who's putting his blood, sweat, and tears into it to make enough money to hopefully buy a house one day, send his kids to school, do whatever. But 10% is a thin margin when you could have an ice storm on a weekend. You could have a global pandemic, which, you know, that's a very rare thing. But on a normal year, you could have uh, uh, like Deep Elm, the re- you know, the neighborhood went through a down a downturn. You could have all you could have a chef walk out. You could have whatever. Whatever there's a hundred reasons where a restaurant could have a could hit a rough patch. Well, guess what? A rough patch is not contemplated by a lease. A lease contemplates perfection, and that doesn't happen in restaurants. So I've had, re- I mean, Green Room, you know, a culinary legend, uh, according to others, I wouldn't say that, but I, I guess I just, just, I did just say that. But the, my point is, is it was a great restaurant that everybody seemed to love. It failed because Deep Ellum took a slide and that 10% went to negative whatever percent and it was over. So I think that there's a better way to do it. I think there's a much better way to do it. And it and it has to be with the landlord and the restaurant tour being partners. They need to partner because here's the thing. That pro forma that the landlord read and that the investors read and that the operator thinks is tr- to, thinks is true. If it's a decent-sized restaurant, it probably says they need to do $75,000 a week to hit that 10% margin and pay everybody back and everybody rides into the sunset. But what happens when, for a couple of weeks, for whatever reason, you do $65,000 a week or $55,000 a week? You know, there, you can have a cold spell. You can have whatever. Suddenly, it's tough to make payroll. And then you're begging Peter to pay Paul and then all of a sudden payrolls due, and then all of a sudden 
the ice machine broke and then all of a sudden the air conditioner went out. It all happens at the same time and you're out of money and you're, everybody quits and it's over and you fail. The nosedive in a restaurant happens very quick. But what if the landlord said, oh, you've got this, you're only doing 55 or 45 or 60,000 a week. I might not get rent for two or three months. But when things, and by the way, fix what's broken. Let's get, let's, whatever, whatever caused this downturn, let's, let's like sort of right size it. Let's just deal with it. But then you come back out of the, the nosedive and then you stabilize and then you start to ascend again into a stabilized environment. That keeps the restaurant open. Well, for all the landlords and brokers on this podcast, how much does it cost to retenant a space? You know, you're closed. You don't get rent or, or uh, triple nets. Then you got to find a tenant. Then you got to pay the broker. Then you got to hire architects. Then you got to do the construction. And then you got to open it. And that takes, you know, could take a year, $700,000 worth of investment. I'm talking about a decent restaurant, not like a, a small inline QSR or something. And then you get reopened. And guess where you are when you reopen after spending 700000 and not collecting rent for 10 months? Another restaurateur that needs to make 10% or they fail. So if you just wrote it out in that rough patch by design, not because you're a benevolent landlord and gave the guy a break, but because in the lease, it contemplated a partnership and you split more of the upside and you rode the downside together, that restaurant wouldn't have failed and you wouldn't have to retenant it and you can fix the problem. And that's what I believe to be a much better formula for success. And I'm not doing any more leases. So if you want me to come open up a restaurant in your space, don't call me if I'm going to sign a traditional lease. But if you want to partner, and I can show you a set of numbers where 42000 a week pays your triple nets and pays me a, enough of a fee and all my workers, but you don't get any rent. But when you start doing 75000 a week again, you're getting way more rent than you ever would have received in a normal deal. And it works a lot better for everybody. So can, can we just describe maybe what a partnership would look like? Because when, when I'm hearing this, I'm thinking, isn't a percentage rent deal similar to a partnership? When the rents are high, I get more. Or when the sales are high, I get more. When they're less, I get less. Like, take that further who's spending all the money to build it out? What what would a good partnership look like if I was asking you to come to my building right now? Which I which I have a building I actually need you to come to, but we can get onto that later. <laughs> this this idea that I'm explaining again, all restaurants, shapes, sizes, landlord needs all have to be factored in, so it's hard to put it into one box. The easiest example is a second generation space because there are so many second-generation spaces right now out there. To go in and, if it was an Italian restaurant, to reopen it as an Italian restaurant, don't get precious and go in there and take the Italian and turn it into French or a burger joint or whatever, because you got to spend a bunch of money. But there's a chance that the Italian restaurant didn't fail because it was bad food or there was a bad location or a bad operator. It failed because the model was broken. And the razor-thin environment everybody was working in caused the failure 
that could have been saved. So in a second gen space, for the landlord to take maybe what they were going to spend on brokerage fees, sorry, brokers out there, if, if you're listening, it's best if a landlord just goes straight to the restaurateur. But but um, in any case, you spend a few hundred grand instead of 700 grand, you reopen the Italian restaurant. It doesn't take 10 months. It takes two or you know one or two or three. And you reopen and you just go 50-50. You, you, all the revenue, say 80% goes to the landlord. All the triple nets get paid and the 5% management fee gets paid to the operator as a, you know, comes out of the just expenses. And then anything left over at the bottom, the majority of that goes to the landlord, maybe 80, 20, until they get paid back anything they put in. And then it's 50, 50 thereafter. No pref, none of that. Don't get cute. Just 50, 50 from there on out. So the rent is derived after the triple nets and after the operator fee as a 50, 50 deal forever. And if you go run the numbers, you can make fifty to sixty thousand a month, seventy thousand. I mean, a month, uh, a week on that earlier example, and have a thriving restaurant that will never fail. You'll never have an empty storefront, and uh, and and you literally have a ten to twenty year tenant. So, is it not done that way? One, maybe because people just haven't thought enough about it. But is it because maybe a lender won't accept a lease like that, or? You know, most. I mean, look, the lender. I I think you know I'm I'm kind of breaking some conventions here, but just because the bank requires this this steady cash flow, they don't realize that that's contributing to a failure, and they're not looking at the failure as a cost of doing business. And what's worse, so I'm just suggesting that we flip the model on its head. And so you are doing deals like that. So are the landlords, obviously the landlords you do deals with can obviously make that happen. Do they have to go through a couple extra hoops to explain it to the bank before getting a thumbs up? Or, you know, are they like Jerry Jones that just does everything all cash and doesn't have to worry about it? It does work better if the owner does whatever the heck they want. We're, we're doing projects down at the Pearl Brewery down in um, San Antonio. And we're building two pretty big again very unique venues they they are both wouldn't exist if the building wasn't as funky as it was and the district and the owner and you know one of them's a live music venue which is our background so you know it's it's a, it was an old horse stable so it's it's this interesting like what do you do with this well let's just create it from scratch but in that deal it's what we just discussed it's let's be partners and let's rise or fall together and you have to stress the model pretty strongly to, to have a true failure and and it's not hard to at least be surviving and thriving you know we, we kind of solved for survival because my big warning to restaurateurs and the landlords is that restaurants fail so don't think of a, about how much rent you can get and how much money a restaurateur can make think about the cost of failure and how to avoid failure. And I'm, I'm just saying it's not in people's vernacular. Well, just one more question on this. Let's assume that lease is in place. You got the, the partnership or not the lease, the, the partnership is in place. Can you maybe just uh, paint just a little bit of a picture that assuming that's in place, 
why do re- why do restaurants that might invest a ton of money but end up failing? Why are great restaurateurs great and other ones are not? Like as as far as it relates to the operating business, what what do they have that others don't? You know, and having done this my whole career, I I don't know if I know the answer to that. I mean, there's some obvious answers like terrible concept, terrible execution. You know, just terrible location. I mean, there's obviously reasons that something could, everybody, you know, these restaurants or these businesses that open and everybody knows they're going to fail before they even open. It's like, that's a terrible idea. So there's, there's, there's the obvious things. But I don't think that's what you're asking me. I, I look at restaurants like Katie Trail Ice House that's in Dallas. That location is not an A location. I mean, we would say it is now because it's on Katie Trail and it's in Uptown. But that is, the end of a dead end street, you know, hidden. You would never have guessed that's a good location. On a trail, I mean, who who's running and then goes and grabs a beer? You know, it's like you're working out. That sounds like a terrible idea. So, you know, they opened up and it's one of the most successful restaurants and bars in, in Dallas's history. And, and they're great operators and they're great people. But I'm just saying like, you, there's examples of why things that you don't think would work hit it out of the park and things that you spent $10 million opening and fail within six months. And I, I believe there's anomalies in our industry that are hard to explain. But the main reason is, is even if you spend $10 million or $7 million or whatever it is to open a big, fancy, incredible, beautiful design and great chef, all that stuff, believe me, if you go back and look at the investor documents, they have razor thin margins and are solving for perfection. And 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 they hit a rough patch and they fail. Yep. All right, we're going to talk about something that hasn't failed, but first, let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we are able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform. When we started to look under the hood of these real estate investment managers that were telling us about their problems, one of the things that we identified was that kind of the operating system of record for managing a lot of the most important information was still spreadsheets. They have never been designed to be a system of record, right? And and when we when we started looking at kind of why real estate reporting was the way that it was, what we found is that spreadsheets were being used as a system of record. And the problem that that created was it makes it really hard to take this information, get the information out of spreadsheets, and get it into the hands of the people who need it the most, which are your investors. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. In the private uh, membership club world, you uh, developed a concept called Park House in Highland Park Village over in Dallas, which has been uh, wildly successful. Let's just talk about, one, how the concept came up and then kind of what the plans are there and how it all works and uh, just kind of how you got into that one. That's been that's been a big highlight of the last few years. 
well, uh, you know, I'd like to travel and I go to these clubs all over the world. I think they're pretty amazing in London and New York and LA. There's these clubs are pretty, pretty fabulous. When you go to them, there's great food and interesting people, great programming. And a lot of these clubs have hotels that get you in the club. So even if you're not a member, you stay in the hotel, you can go visit the club. So through, through one way or another, I could work my way into these clubs and I was just uh, a student of them. And thought that Dallas was ready for this and even tried to get some New York clubs to partner with me and they just laughed. I mean, we can talk about this gateway first tier city thing in a minute because I'm fascinated by it. Um, so don't forget to ask me about that. But I came, I, I remember sitting in a meeting in New York and they're just going, Dallas is hay bales and wagon wheels. They would never do a club. I mean, it would never work. You're wasting your time. And that just fired me up and looked for a long time. You know, if you're going to do a private membership club, it has to be a perfect location. And we've, after two years, finally figured out that there was a third floor in a building in Highland Park Village that I didn't even notice after going there a thousand times. And um, it, it was an immediate, obvious location. So called the landlords. What do you think about a private club? They, they were like, wow, we've always been scratching our head on what to do with that third floor. So we took that over and uh, partnered up with a great guy, John Scott, who's, his background is five-star luxury hotels, Rosewood and Belmont. And one of the great, great guys of the world called him up, said, let's partner up and do this. And that was, uh, that, that was how Park House got started. What's interesting is we actually were looking in Deep Ellum and the design district and Uptown and just kind of looking around. And, and it was going to be more edgy like Soho House. But when we figured out that Holland Park Village was, was, was the right space, we shifted our model to be more upscale, more influential. I like to think of Soho House's members as influencers, but our members are influential. It's a it's a pretty incredible membership group that that has joined, and they're they're definitely the people that are making an impact in Dallas and Fort Worth, and we have members actually from all over the world. And we shifted our model to be this more you know, finer wines and travel and art and beautiful design. We hired one of the best designers we could find. And uh, and it just it just took off. There was pent up demand. We have 4,100 people on the waiting list right now. So what do you do with those 4,100 people? Because if I'm number 4,100, I'm pretty much uh, never going to get in. You open up more locations. Do you, how do you think about that? Or you just keep raising your prices on membership? Well, it's a referral system. So if you go online and apply, it has blanks for who do you know or who's referring you. And if you just leave them blank, there's a really good chance that you're going to just kind of sit on the sit on the list. But if you put on there, you know, that you know me or know somebody or whatever, our, we have a membership staff and a committee. They'll call those people. What do you know? Who, who are, you know, and so... It's not a, it's not a secret. You don't, you don't, you're not on the back of the list day one. You're, we're trying to always improve our membership group 
and there's a mix. We don't want too much of this and not enough of that. We're about 50% women, which is unusual for a club. Uh, we're very diverse. We um, have a lot of, we're trying to break the mold on a lot of things and people appreciate that. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, go fishing in the, in the wait list and try to find things that we're, we're lacking or need to, to enhance. Yep. Is there something uh, that comes to mind, you know, when you create a concept like that, that after opening and now being open for quite a while, you're like, I never would have thought this would have happened here, or I never realized people would use the place this way. Is there any, has it been used in a different way than you ever anticipated, or it's been pretty close to the plan? You know, a, a kind of timely answer is, is COVID related. You know, we're, most restaurants, there's an entire segment of the population that just won't go to restaurants right now. They're worried and, and rightfully so. I mean, it's, it's scary. We're in a scary time right now. And, you know, is it risky? I don't know. Um, we can get onto that. I mean, I, I have a restaurant, so, so we, uh, we follow all the protocols, but it, you know, there are people that still won't go, but at a private club, we scan you when you come in and this crazy scanner system that we bought, and we escort you to a seat. We sit you down. You're masked up. When you sit, you really can't mingle. You're not supposed to get up and walk around and, hey, what's up? You know, it's it's pretty organized. And so our older crowd finds it to be w- very safe. So we were surprised to see we've been very busy during COVID because the older crowd finds it to be safer than, an, than a regular restaurant. And then our younger crowd, it dawned on them at some point that we have five bars <laughs> and it's fun. And so they closed all the bars around town and they wrote, well, we can just go up there and grab a drink. So we had our younger people showing up in droves because they, they are having fun up there. So uh, I don't know. I was very surprised by, the, by how the usage changed during COVID. Um, other than that, I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward. I mean, it's dining, it's food and drinks and fun. You know, we have a ton of programming. Okay, couple more questions on this topic. One, we were going to get to uh, on the topic of gateway and first tier cities. You had some opinions there. Well, it's more of I'm kind of excited about Dallas, Fort Worth's place in the world. I mean, you could broaden that and say Texas. Uh, but I mean, obviously we all know Austin is white hot right now, but so is Dallas. And I'm sure I don't study Houston and as much from a, but I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's on fire. I mean, everything in Texas seems to be on fire right now. And, and going back to the, the looking down at us from those in New York city and LA, they just really dismissed us as a gateway city. And I've lived here for a long, long time. And I know, that this is a gateway city. I mean, we have, with our airport and population and growth and strength of our economy and diversity of our economy, we are a gateway city. But New York would never put us in the same category as them, neither would LA or San Francisco or Chicago. And maybe pre-pandemic, they had an argument. But then this comes along and I do, right now I'm traveling to Miami a lot. I mean, 
New York, at least the wealthy set in New York, has drained out. And they are all in Miami. A lot of them are here in Dallas. And there's a real thing going on right now. And I think that DFW is going to come out of this thing as a different in a different place as LA and New York. I don't wish them ill will. I have a lot of restaurant friends in New York and LA, and it's so sad. And it's such a bummer. And everybody's so just super unhappy right now for obvious reasons. And there's people, we have an influx of, of uh, applicants from LA and New York right now. And they're just coming in going, hey, I've, I've lived in LA my entire life. I wasn't even thinking of leaving. It wasn't even on the radar of thought. Sure, I don't like paying taxes. Sure, I don't like the traffic. But I'm not leaving. Now they're living in Dallas. They bought a house. They live here. They're putting their kids in school. And they, that decision was made in the last three to six months. And these are hedge fund owners and bankers and artists, of great artists just showed up. And now we're going to do a collaboration with him. Um, he was never, ever moving to Dallas. Now he lives in Dallas, Texas. So I think this is happening so fast. And everybody's focused on, obviously, the health and people getting better, which they, we need to be focused on. But when this is all over, it'd be really interesting to see how far behind we are of LA and New York versus before. Yeah. Yeah, they're, 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 um, those cities have taken it to a whole new level as far as the pandemic. And it'll be interesting to see how they remarket themselves to attract people going forward. You never know where the line is, but it certainly feels like they've, they've pushed the, they've pushed the limits. And, um, we're seeing the same thing, people moving in in droves from a lot of the coastal states. So it'll be interesting how things reorient once things hopefully get back to normal. I know in Miami right now, if you had a $2 million house, it's four. <laughs> if you had a $5 million house, it's 10. Everything there that I've, and all the people that I've been working with on a, on a project there, every time I ask a question, it's double in six months. What uh? What is the future of pay, private paid membership clubs? Is is I don't know how to ask the question. If it's like, are we in the first inning of a ball game, or is this a is this going to continue to be a trend, or uh, it's just going to kind of keep moving along like it's been moving along? I mean, we've seen a you know, obviously there was a pent up demand for this one in in Dallas. We have some other projects around the country, so we are a believer that this is a good place to invest. And, and, and so we're going to grow. Um, again, it has to be the perfect location. So we've been looking in Houston for years. And, uh, you know, it's just tough. It's tough to find the right location. So uh, we're, we're going to keep looking on all, all these other markets. And some of them, we have some places identified. And so we, we believe that, that it is a great place to invest. And it's a good model. I mean, here's, here's the thing. Back to an earlier topic. I don't want to open a traditional restaurant because it's, I don't care how many I've opened and how much experience I have. Jose could fail. You know, it could literally fail. It could go into that nosedive and fail. So I don't want to do a traditional lease. So I'm either going to partner with landlords and we're going to do it together or have something that has recurring revenue which is a private membership club. But the model, I, mean, I don't want to do the traditional model because I think you're set up for failure, unfortunately. And we're going to talk about 
kind of coming out of the pandemic, I, one question just came to mind that I'd written down as it relates to restaurants. Should restaurateurs be thinking more about kind of this ghost kitchen model where they can outsource a lot of the cost uh, of a big commercial kitchen to a in more industrial space, or is it a case-by-case basis? So generally, I mean, we did a, we did a uh, ghost kitchen at Jose. We do a whole chicken so we 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 dipped our toe into this to this water as well, um, but I think it's a sideshow. Um, I do think there is interesting things happening in ghost kitchens, and I guarantee there. I promise there will be big successes, and somebody's going to nail it on. It's just like Katie Charles says: there will be people that figure it out and do really well, but there are thousands and thousands of good. All, it's not just a big commercial kitchen. These are like just a normal restaurant like Jose is now has a second restaurant called Perfecto Pollo doing these these roast, rotisserie chickens, these whole meals you can order at your house um, that that are really fun for our staff. It's creative juices. They, they love the thought of it. They love putting the logo and the side Instagram account. I mean, it's really fun, but it's a sideshow. I mean, it's I just don't think it's a business model for us. I mean, I, I really don't don't want to say don't go do it just for us. And I wouldn't start a business based on it. People want to connect with their entertainment and food and beverage. They want to connect personally. They want to feel it. They want the story. And ghost kitchens are pretty transparent. They don't exist. That's why they're ghosts. They're just food. All right, let's talk about that for a little bit. We don't I don't want to spend much time on what 2020 was like for restaurateurs and hospitality. I think at this point the world pretty much knows it was not a great year. But we are starting to release the vaccine, optimism starting to build up from a guy that that is at the intersection of humans colliding and you've built a career around it. What are just some things that we should expect kind of moving forward, maybe as it relates to the next year? And then as like a five-year period, are you a believer that, you know, five years from now, this will be way in the past and we will have kind of gone back to normal? What, what, what's, gonna, what's the good news for hospitality going forward, whether it's events, hotels, restaurants? Um, is there anything you're seeing that, that people would find interesting? So it is, it has been a tough year for everybody. And, you know, thank God we're in Texas because, you know, I like to think that we're, we've really just, as restaurateurs here, oh, we're so great. You know, we're in Texas. That's why we're, that's why we're surviving. If we were in LA, we'd been, we'd be in month 10 of closure, you know, or New York, a little bit of outdoor dining here and there, but they keep opening and closing that. So, uh, you know, I think, taking stock in how your government is reacting to this pandemic is uh, is material to, to the decisions that are going to be made going forward. That's why we're having so many relocations here. Um, I think outdoors dining, like outdoors, outdoor anything is here to stay. Every, every project I'm working on has retractable roof systems and walls that retract and outdoor areas and i think people are less finicky about heat and cold i think they're willing to get under a heater and kind of wear a warm jacket and sit outside even after the pandemic so i think you'll see outdoor spaces in every project i mean not every but you know what i mean you'll see a lot of them 
I know they'll be in line. Uh, I think we right-sized the amount of seats. You know, we have a lot of closures. And we probably had too many seats, restaurant seats to begin with. So people are going to go back to normal. And they are going to go out and eat. And there's going to be less seats. So those who survive will probably have uh, a good year when this is over. A good two, three years. Until the other restaurateurs start opening up too many restaurants again. So I feel I feel like we're going to have a good run after this is over. You know what is what defines being over? You know my house. We've we have four people in our house. Three of us had it, and one of us got the vaccine. So we have a household that I know you can't. You know the antibodies are probably going to keep you from getting sick again. But we basically we kind of believe they they will protect you. But I say that with a disclaimer. I don't really know. But we have um, we have a household that's ready to go back out, ready to kind of get after it. So every, you know, it's not like the world is going to stay locked up. There, there's some percentage of people every day that are getting back, either vaccinated or or, or have gone through having it. And so we're going to ease out of this. It's probably going to be the fall, at the earliest, before everybody gets their vaccine or or has had it. So we're going to have to really, you know, be careful over the next six or eight months. Be careful with our our capital. Thankfully, the PPP2 came out. That's very helpful for this industry. And then I think it's going to be the roaring 20s. I think after the pandemic in um, 1918, there was the roaring 20s. So we have a pandemic. I think people are going to come out and go bananas for years. So, So get ready for that. When can we expect music festivals to start happening again? Not till the fall, or are you already seeing some that have been planned? So we have a music festival called Pilgrimage. It's just outside of Nashville in Franklin, Tennessee. It would have been its sixth year this year, or sorry, last year. And of course, that didn't happen. But we, ours is the last weekend of September, and we think we're going to have, the. we've already booked it, and we think it's going to happen. So, you know, later this year, much later this year, uh, you'll start seeing things here and there. Live Nation has announced that they're going to require the vaccine or, or proof of negative tests to come to their festivals. So you'll start seeing some interesting technology pop up where we can be easily identify who is safe to go to a crowded event. So we'll, we'll start easing out of it and, and back into the music festival world ASAP. Teenagers used to try and get fake IDs to get into uh, entertainment. Now they're going to have their fake vaccination ID to get in or something like that. That's the There's a new industry that's probably going to brew. Yep. What's the economics of the music? Just a quick rundown of a festival. What what How, how do they work? Um, why are they successful and why can they easily lose a lot of money? I would put it in the restaurant model department it's just a delicate thing and i think a music festival the biggest risk of a music festival is weather and it can think about all the things that can be could happen it could rain it could lightning we had a one of our years in the middle of the show some lightning storm blew in and we had to evacuate 
the whole the whole uh, festival. Um, we had insurance for it, but it was such a bummer because you work 363 days a year for two days. And when you lose a day or a day and a half, you basically got to go another 363 days until you get to swing at the bat again and swing it uh, at bat again. So I think there's, there's catastrophic risk with weather. Otherwise, it's a pretty good, pretty good uh, model. It's fun. I'll tell you, it's the most fun we have. Of all the things we do, that music festival is so much fun to to put on. My brother, Brant, is the one that produces it. It's, it's his baby. And I think it brings him the most joy in life is to put that, that festival on. And are the festivals that you're involved with, are you the owner of the festival or do you act as a, I don't know, a consultant to people that want to put on a festival? We, we have done both. And Pilgrimage, we're a partner and, and founder, mostly my brother. And others, we've consulted with people that want to have festivals. We usually sit them down and go, no, you don't. But sometimes people really do want to have them. So we figure out how to make them as risk-free as possible. Yep. One more question, and then we'll kind of move into some pri- uh, personal ones, and we'll, we'll bring her home. But um, going back to the private membership club real quick. Could these not exist at some level in like a a Lubbock, Texas, or a you know like a Waco or a, even a Fort Worth? Kind of these smaller cities on on a different type of uh, venue, lower cost, or does it really need to work at in these kind of bigger cities that um, have a certain demographic? So there, it depends on the model, and there is a a private membership club called Common House that is out of Charlottesville that their whole entire model is secondary markets. And it's lower membership fees and kind of more neighborhoody and localized. And and uh, it's really cool. Great owner uh, who's who's done a wonderful job defining who they are, who they want to be. And their aspirations are not New York and Miami. Their aspirations are Chattanooga and Richmond and, and other secondary markets. So they could come to a Waco or Lubbock or you know somewhere that, that is not an obvious answer for one of these works. I mean, our, our club was very expensive to build. So the investment would probably prohibit us from going into a secondary market, but there are, I would, if you're out there and you have a great building with wonderful character, reach out to the common house guys because they are entrepreneurs, really smart, and they are expanding. I love it. A couple personal ones. I, uh, the first one, I've just talked to so many people on this podcast and there just became a recurring theme. I've only been asking this question the last few episodes. Do you have a childhood experience that you remember vividly that has kind of shaped maybe the direction your life took or who you are today? God, that can go in so many directions. Um, maybe since this is more of a businessy topics we've been on, something that comes to mind is when I was in high, early high school, like 10th grade or so, well, how old are you then? Like 15, 16 years old. I really wanted a pair of Varney sunglasses badly. 
and there were 60 bucks because we because we used to ski i mean we went like to when we skied we you, you got a hold of varnays one way or another and i wanted a pair and there were 60 bucks and somebody explained to me that they were really 30 dollars that's how much the store bought them for and so i got fixated on getting an, a reseller account and i finally got my varnays for 30 bucks and then I started selling them to other people and ended up being the largest Varney sales outlet in <laughs> five states. And, and, uh, but I got my $30 pair of Varney's. And so I guess that was a little bit of a, a life hack, but you know, you, it's, there's some way to figure out everything that is not the linear thinking. Like I want Varney's, I need to pay $60 and go into that store. It's wait a minute. I don't have sixty bucks. How else am I going to get it? Well, I can get a reseller account, buy them for thirty. Oh wait, maybe I can sell to my friends. That set you off uh, in business. <laughs> so that's when I realized that you can open businesses and create value and have fun doing it. Back then, you probably weren't able to open up a Shopify account and a newsletter and all these other literally channels. <laughs> you know, it's funny about that story is. When you sell a certain amount of RNA, there, I sold them out of my bedroom. Uh, but I mean, I had sellers. I had guys who would sell them at LSU and Tulane and other high schools and stuff. And they would just order them over the phone and I'd ship them to them. But the but if you order, if you buy a certain amount of Varnays, they send you like a case, like this thing that would go on your counter in your store. Like with, it spins around and has a mirror on it. And I didn't need that because I didn't have a showroom. But if you sell a bunch of them, they'll send you a floor-mounted case. And if you sell even more, they say, so I had all these trucks showing up in my house bringing these cases, these display cases. I didn't know where to put them. It was really funny. My mom thought it was crazy. I love it. What's one thing you believe that most people don't believe? I think, well, I don't really think. <laughs> I don't think ahead in a, in a, I don't like to plan too far ahead. I know there's going to be bends in the river and I know that whatever is around that bend, I probably didn't contemplate, but I need to be ready for it. And I, I'm ready. I, I freaking zig and zag and people are, Oh, you are always looking at shiny objects, man. I am looking at every shiny object that's out there because first of all, it's fun to do mm -hmm. and it might lead to something amazing. So so you don't plan as much. I don't really plan. I don't try to say in 10 years, I'm going to do this. If I stick to this plan. Yeah, A lot of people the, do. Nothing wrong the, with that. But you can march yourself off a cliff setting some 10-year vision. I have. You can, you can do that without planning as well. I have done it. I have walked right off of a cliff and landed hard. We didn't talk about my real estate fund. Okay, go ahead. What's the next one? What's the best book you've ever read? Personal or business? Uh, business, those are easy. You know, I like the wild entrepreneur books, like crazy people like Richard Branson, his book's so fun to read when his freaking 747 blows, engine blows up on the maiden voyage or, uh, or Elon Musk. If y'all haven't read his book, you know, just the, the insane decisions that he made to get where he is. The, that you're on a roller coaster reading those two books. My favorite, one of my recent favorite books is Empire of the Sun and the Moon, just because I didn't know Texas history. We learned Louisiana history. 
it's it's fascinating that that really what went down on the under our feet in Dallas and Fort Worth and all the neighboring areas with the with the Indians and it's uh, it's a story that unless you read that book it's not really told in our history yep. that way. All right, last one. If you owned a billboard, let's say it's on 75 in Dallas, and you could put anything on that billboard for everybody that passes by to see every day besides call Woodhouse and let us do a project with you, what would you put on that billboard? (laughs) I say this all the time. You're born and you die. What are you going to do in between? I love it. I love it. All right. What's the best way uh, for somebody maybe to get in touch with Woodhouse or your team? WoodhouseUS.com, any other way? You know, I don't I don't know what our website says, but uh, I think I'm on LinkedIn. I don't look at it. But I mean, if you LinkedIn, I think it emails me. So I'm not a big LinkedIner, but that's one way to get to me. And then our website has a contact form, I believe. We don't have a phone number. We don't have phones. Like our office, all our people, there's not a phone system in this office. So it's all cell phones. So yeah, I think the website contact form or LinkedIn or email me or something. All right, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was awesome. Uh, I've really enjoyed the last few years of just getting to hear little things that that you've had to say. They've stuck with me. Um, And we definitely need to get together sometime soon. Would love to connect sometime in the next few months. That sounds great. Let's do it. All right, man. Be well, be safe. I'll talk to you soon. Hey, hey, Chris, thanks for inviting me on the show. Yeah, dude. This really was really cool. This was awesome. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.